to talk this morning about biblical counseling. We'll look at a few selected scriptures, and I'm going to kind of introduce the topic this week, and we'll dive in a little bit more next week. So pray with me, and we'll start our time together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being back from Russia, being here uh, with our body, with this church that I love and enjoy so much their love for you and their love for your word and their desire to exalt Christ. And thank you for the faithful men and women in this body who pray and support and give and serve. And I pray, God, as we venture into this important topic of biblical counseling, that you would give us deep conviction and that you would give us an appropriate balance on what your word teaches on this important topic. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, her name was Candace. She had light brown hair and a splash of freckles across her face. She was born into a poor family in the backwoods of North Carolina. Her parents were poor and plagued with various troubles and even struggled with drug addiction. The police had visited their home several times in the first few years of Candace's problem-filled life. When she was just five years old, she was plucked away by social service workers and she was given to a well-to-do single nurse who was looking for a child to love and she ended up serving as Candace's foster parent. Her adopted mom found Candace's behavioral problems too much to handle. Candace was not used to having any kind of daily schedule and had never been to a daycare before. In addition to all of these challenges in her new life, she missed her parents and did not know what had become of them. The new foster mom tried everything she could to help doctors and psychologists and medication, but nothing seemed to be working. So she sought help from a group of therapists in the state of Colorado. She paid $7,000 for a controversial psychotherapy treatment called rebirthing. Rebirthing is a therapy to treat children diagnosed with attachment disorder where the adopted child resists a loving relationship with their newfound parents. The children are taken into a special room for therapy where they are covered in blankets and pillows meant to simulate the womb and are encouraged to push their way out or to emerge in an effort to be reborn. Candace was wrapped in a blanket And surrounded by pillows to simulate this womb-like experience. And there were four committed therapists who pushed against her for 70 minutes. They were saying, emerge and bond with your new mom. Emerge. Why are you being such a wimp? Candace screamed and she begged them to stop. And they kept saying, push, push. And Candace said, I feel like I'm going to die. And they said, go ahead and die then. And she did. Candace died from suffocation after undergoing rebirthing therapy. And when the therapist finally removed all the pillows, she was found lifeless underneath. Two of the four therapists were charged with reckless child abuse resulting in death. Both received 16-year prison sentences. Rebirthing therapy has now been banned in many states. It has been described as potentially abusive and pseudoscientific. 
Senator Mark Hillman at the time said this, quote, no one can read about this and not be horrified. The sheriff from North Carolina who knew her family said about Candace, she didn't have a chance from the moment that she was born until the moment she died at 10 years old. That's a tragic story. Now, I'm not here this morning by any means to hint that, that every psychological experience ends in physical death. But it is kind of crazy to see how our culture has completely bought into the field of psychology as an answer to every problem. And in our over-psychological world, people have exchanged the wisdom of God that helps us deal with challenging issues for a lie. And the lie is this. The lie is the simple belief that psychology is equipped to help provide needed comfort and true life change. It is not. Psychology is nothing more than man's wisdom. In fact, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and look at verses 18 and following. Here, Paul kind of addresses this whole concept, if you will, of the difference between man's wisdom and God's wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians 3.18, we read this, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Well, this is exactly what's going on in our culture. People who claim to be wise, who gain degrees and study with many years of their life devoted to psychological study and research, claim to know and understand more about the human heart and human behavior than God's word. On the other hand, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. So we have a choice to make this morning to whether we're going to trust in the wisdom of this world, which provides various ideologies and systems of thought to help us address difficult issues in life, or we can go with the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ. So the answer to the problems of the human heart obviously do not lie within the secular wisdom of this world, but within the knowledge of God. Only God can change a life from the inside out. Only God can truly heal the brokenhearted. We didn't sing songs this morning about secular psychology. We sang about how God and his truth lives forever. And so we have a choice to make this morning to whether or not we're going to receive influence from the wisdom of the world, or we're going to look simply to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to the liberty, those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
So we kind of understand a little bit that it's all about Christ. It's about Christ coming to set us free from our sin problem. It's about Christ coming to bind up the brokenhearted. It's about Christ coming to each one of us to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so this morning, I want to take a look at this important topic of biblical counseling. And it's a huge privilege for me to attempt to teach you some of the things that God is still teaching me in this process of biblical counseling. You see, counseling is all about change. It's all about helping people change. And so I'm an individual in need of great change. You're an individual in need of great change. And biblical counseling is helping us get to where God wants us to be. He wants us to to change, to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And so what I'm going to attempt again to teach you this morning are just things that I've drawn from all of the education I've been able to pursue. Uh, Things I've learned from counseling classes at the Master's Seminary. Things I've learned as I've become ACBC certified. Uh, Things I've learned even in my experience in the medical world, working as a physician's assistant. And from my experience at helping start a biblical counseling center at Lakeside Bible Church and my uh, opportunity to help serve alongside of Steve, Pastor Severance, uh, starting our counseling center here. Uh, I've benefited greatly from many men and women who've been before me, men like Jay Adams and John MacArthur and Wayne Mack and Stuart Scott and John Street, Ted and Paul Tripp, Lou Priolo, Steve Viers, just to name a few. But the more I study the Bible and I read books and articles on biblical counseling and the more I counsel, the more I feel inadequate. To be able to really help a person sitting across the desk with their problem. Because I realize that I'm not even the answer. It's not me. It's not my training. It's not my background. It's somehow helping this person see that they need Christ. That Christ is the answer. That Christ provides true hope. That Christ can bring about good things from bad things that happen in this life. And so like you, I'm in the process of becoming a better counselor and in no way claim to have the answer to every question. However, I am a firm believer in the sufficiency of the Bible. I am a firm believer that God has given us all that we need for life and for godliness. And it's found in God's word. And so when I sit there sometimes across the table from somebody telling me about the horror of their life, sometimes I'm without words and I'm like, uh, uh, I'm not sure where to start. I'm not sure what to say other than I'm so sorry that this happened to you. But I believe in a good God who is actually sovereign over all things and can even work this difficult thing for good in your life. And I want to help teach you to respond in a heart with a heart of gratitude and to keep you from becoming bitter and to help you to realize that you don't have to remain a victim, but you can be victorious by thinking biblically about these situations that have happened in your life. And so my goal over the next couple of weeks is to kind of introduce biblical counseling to you this week. And next week, I want to focus a little bit more on teaching you how to do it. All right. So this morning, let's look at the first of these four major headings. Number one will be this again, an introduction to biblical counseling. So let me give you a definition to make sure we know what we're talking about. That's your first blank there in your outline. Biblical counseling is confronting, admonishing, instructing people with the word of God in the power of the spirit of God to help them change in their thinking and behavior to make them more like Christ for God's glory and for their 
good. That'll be our working definition of biblical counseling. We're here to help instruct people, admonish people, to confront one another as we desire to help each other change. Notice the, the key word there is we don't want just we don't want people just to have an intellectual understanding of who God is. We want God to radically change their life. We want marriages put back together again. We want men who stop looking at pornography. We want young people obedient to their parents. We, we want to all be like Christ, each one of us in our own way. And it comes from looking at God's word, looking at our hearts and realize that we're in desperate need of the grace of God. And by God's grace, we can change. So we've got to understand first having the right theology so that we can move into the right methodology of what biblical counseling is. And so my desire is to instruct you and to help you and equip you and to help us all grow spiritually so that the counsel that we offer may be more God honoring, more Christ centered and more spirit dependent so that you can serve our church and our community with greater precision. All right, I mean, here's the idea. You might be sitting here already thinking, well, I'm not really a biblical counselor. So I, this just applies for seminary students and people that took biblical counseling classes at the college, right? Well, that's wrong. This applies to everybody. Biblical counseling is biblical discipleship. Biblical counseling is biblical sanctification. Biblical counseling is practicing the one another's with one another. And every time we open our mouth, we're offering counsel to somebody about their life and their situation. And what you're telling them is either based on your opinion or Lord willing, it could be based on the principles of scripture so that you can really help somebody. So let's begin by just acknowledging there's lots of problems out there. Right. Everybody has a problem. All you got to do is look at the news, look at the headlines and you realize our world is in a mess. And so the question is, well, how are we going to help fix the mess? I mean, what is the answer to people's problems? This world would say psychology, psychotherapy and medication. They would say these things are the solution to help people with their personal issues. Whereas the Bible says the only solution to men's problems is for man to repent from his sinful rebellion against God and to get into a right relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Biblical counsel begins with the gospel. If somebody doesn't know Christ, we can't help them. So when people come to me for counseling and I begin to start with the gospel to help them and they say, oh, no, 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 I don't want Jesus I just want you to help me in my marriage. And I just look at them and say, I'm sorry, I can't. I can't help you. There's nothing I can do to help you have a better marriage. Because God's not into behavioral change. He's into heart change. I mean, sure, I could offer some different antidotes of how to love your wife and how your wife should, should respect your husband. And we could talk about that all day long. But if you don't know Christ, then it's leading you into further legalism. It's leading you into thinking, oh, if I abide by certain morality and a certain marriage code devoid of Christ, somehow we'll have a better marriage. Well, I mean, it is possible, I guess, from a human perspective that you had a better marriage. But at the end of your life, when you die, you will go to hell. And my goal in biblical counseling is not help people have a better marriage on their way to hell. But my goal in biblical counseling is to lead one and to lead all to Jesus Christ who provides answers that we need for life's most difficult problems to give us help and to give us hope no matter what your situation is. And I believe this because 
of my relationship with Jesus Christ. He changed me. Wasn't changed by secular psychology. Wasn't changed by picking up a a textbook and attending an introduction to psychology on a secular campus. I was changed by the gospel. So this morning, I want to teach you two major things about psychology, A and B. They're on your outline. A is this. Psychology is diametrically opposed to the Bible. The world's way is psychology, but God's way is Christianity. Psychology and Christianity have been enemies from the very beginning. Their foundational beliefs are diametrically opposed to one another. Strangely enough, however, much of the evangelical community has tried to get these two sworn enemies to marry each other. And they call the marriage Christian counseling. Basically, the idea of Christian counseling or, or Christian psychology, the marriage maybe more specifically would be Christian psychology, right? Secular psychology married together with Christianity. This idea is that it's really secular psychology disguised in spiritual terminology. It is a blend of psychological theories and therapies sprinkled with Bible verses. There are countless books and clinics and live radio programs that have catapulted Christian psychology into a billion-dollar business. So in the world of counseling, as far as the church is concerned, you have this psychological Christian counseling, which oftentimes is just called Christian counseling, and then you have biblical counseling. So Christian counseling, by and large, is dependent on integrationism between Christianity and psychology, whereas biblical counseling is dependent on the Bible alone. And it's sad, but not surprising, that so many in the church today depend on secular thinking to fill a void that exists in every person's life. And so I'm here this morning to give you a very bold claim, and the bold claim is this, godly counsel or biblical counsel does not need man's wisdom at all. There's not one thing that the world of secular psychology offers in addition to the Bible by which that we need in order to change a person's life. That's adding to the gospel. And so the idea is while there may have been advancements in psychology, which both the secular uh, person and the Christian could look at and say, hey, that research is helpful. We, entered, we, we interpret it from two different worldviews, one from a secular worldview, one from a Christian worldview. And so it might be interesting to look at various studies. They're really just um, common grace of general revelation, which is available to all of us. It's really how we use that research that really defines whether or not it's truly helping or not helping. So maybe I could just paste this whole thing this way, make it all like this. Turn to Jeremiah 2.13. I don't know what paste means, but maybe I could uh, point you to Jeremiah 2.13 to say, this is what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to couch it maybe with this concept, all right? Jeremiah, he's pleading for God's people to repent and to come to, to, uh, to Yahweh. And they don't want to do it. They want to do their own thing. And so in Jeremiah 2.13, he writes this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the foundation of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. What I'm trying to suggest to you today is that psychology is a broken cistern. 
If you try to take man's wisdom, who has left God, tries to explain human behavior and development uh, from a secular worldview, my friends, that's called a broken cistern. And the broken cistern of psychology doesn't hold any life-giving water. And so the idea is I want to come to the living water of Christ and his word to drink deeply so that my heart can be filled with with satisfaction and real answers to what's going on in my life. And so not seeking complete satisfaction in God and in the provision of his word is sin. False teachers teach that you can find answers outside of the Bible. That's why the New Testament is filled with warnings of this. Paul told Timothy that false teachers uh, be careful for them because they're the ones that have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. He tells Timothy, avoid such people for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. Burdened with sins, led astray by various passions, always learning, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Second Timothy three, five through seven. And so the idea of the false teacher is, well, they appear godly. Even Christian psychologists appear godly because they talk a little bit about the Bible. But if they give way into secular ideology in any way, it is possible that they could be captured into this system of thought that doesn't come from God's word. And it could be, could it be possible that they're always learning, but never really able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, which is Christ and his word, which is completely sufficient for all that we need. And so if Paul is warning Timothy about some of these false teachers, how much more should we be worried about just full blown secular psychology? I'll never forget taking a, a class on this subject from Dr. Stuart Scott at the Master's Seminary. And he talked about how in his early life, he felt unable to really manage some of the cases going on in his church. And so he would call other pastors and say, hey, what do you guys do? Some of these complicated counseling cases. And they would say, oh, we defer or, or, or we refer. We refer them to other Christian counselors who have psychologist degrees uh, and they're, they're able to handle some of those really difficult cases. And that way you can just focus on studying the word and preaching. And so he said, okay. So he starts referring some of his uh, members of his church to this Christian psychologist. And after a while, he noticed this one family wasn't coming back. And so he called the guy up and he said, hey, are you getting counseling? And he said, sure. And he said, how's it going? He's like, it's going great. He said, well, where where have you been? I haven't seen you at church lately. And he said, oh, my psychologist told me not to come anymore. He said, well, how come? And he said, well, I was struggling with depression and coming to church made me feel more depressed. So my Christian psychologist said, well, don't go back. You could just have a love relationship with God between you and the Bible. You don't need to be a part of a church. Well, if that's the kind of counseling, and and again, I know it sounds like I'm throwing every Christian uh, psychologist under the bus. I, I don't mean to do that. Only those that would hold to any type of real secular principle as a part of their uh, counsel. You understand that, right? But the idea is that it's a slippery slope because we really can't combine what the world has to offer and what God has to offer and somehow mix them together. Instead, what's happening in our culture in churches by and large is Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. 
I wonder if some of the false teachers of our day could be Christian psychologists who claim to know Christ and yet are offering a kind of counsel that's really rooted in and based on secular psychology. Well, you're probably asking, man, what's got Adam so far up about this? I mean, what's really wrong with psychology anyway? Uh, You may be thinking, can integrating psychology with Christianity really be that bad to warrant such a scathing rebuke? Well, let me take a moment and answer that question to you this morning. And I want to answer the question, what is wrong with psychology? By the next four points in your outline, I want to talk about four uh, basic uh, reasons why psychology is wrong. Okay, Number one, psychology is wrong because of who founded it. Psychology is wrong because of who founded it. By the way, psychology is the study of the soul. Okay, so we're, we're taking the wisdom and intellect of trained uh, and, and, and um, educated men who are trying to explain the soul of man without God. That's what psychology is all based on. All right. So it's wrong because of who founded it. Sigmund Freud is known as the father of modern psychology and psychotherapy. He was not a Christian, and he was trying to explain human behavior and development from a secular worldview. He has been described as, quote, an atheist, God-hating Jew with a lot of sexual hang-ups, close quote. He hated his father and had a sexual love for his mother. He was a pervert. He called himself, quote, a completely godless Jew and a hopeless pagan, close quote. He considered the Bible to be a storybook filled with fairy tales. He hated religion so much so that he claimed that it was only invented to fulfill man's needs, even admitting that he devised psychotherapy as a substitute for religion. He even proposed that he began practicing his psychotherapy on Easter Sunday morning to provide a way where people could get answers outside of the gospel. And so Freud is obviously not a friend of Christianity. He is a self-proclaimed enemy. If you look at 2 Timothy 3.5, we read this, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such People. Now, that passage, again, is talking about false teachers. So if we're supposed to avoid false teachers, how much more are we supposed to avoid somebody who outright tells us that they hate God and they want to come up with a substitute for religion? Think we should tap into their way of thinking and benefit from their work, or maybe we should avoid them altogether. How about Psalm 1, 1 and 2? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Listen, if you have a problem, come to Christ. Don't sit at the feet of a scoffer. Don't sit at the feet of a sinner or listen to the counsel of the wicked. Trust in God. Look to God's word. Believe that Christ is able to change you and to give you hope even in the most difficult of situations. Let me give you a second reason why psychology is wrong. Number two, psychology is wrong because of what it teaches. 
It's hard to get a handle on exactly what psychology teaches because it's constantly changing. From its origin, it has been fragmented into dozens of different competing philosophies of psychology, such as depth psychology, behaviorism, hierarchy of needs, etc. It's been estimated that today there are over 250 different philosophies of psychology. However, even though it has evolved into many different forms, all of these forms are based on the same foundational theories and core beliefs. In other words, no matter what kind of psychologist you are, because they argue amongst themselves about what's the right way to do it, all secular psychology is founded on four presuppositions, okay? Four foundational beliefs. Number one, and this is little a in your outline, they would all believe that man is a product of evolution and is basically good by nature. Remember, we're talking about secular psychology here. This is where it comes from, that we're all a product of evolution. Freud believed that we're all animals, who simply live out our instincts. And this comes out in his view of sex. No limitation. Anybody can have sex with anybody at any time, just like an animal would. B.F. Skinner, another well-known secular psychologist, taught that people were animals that can be conditioned. So he based this assumption on experiments like the now famous Pavlov's dogs. Remember that experiment? Basically, you had some dogs in the kennel. You bring a dog out. You ring the bell. After you ring the bell, you put some food in front of him, and he's like, ah, and he eats all the food. The next day, you do the same thing. You take him out of the kennel, you put him in this room, and you ring a bell. And he sits there and kind of looks at you funny. Then you put some nice food in front of him, and he devours the food. And after doing this, day after day, for several weeks, what you can see happening is you could bring the dog out, put him in the room, ring the bell, and all of a sudden, the dog starts salivating. Even though there's no food there, the dog all of a sudden starts salivating, and they say, ah, well, you can train People, you, you can, uh, it's behavioralism. The, the dog salivates as a result of the environment. So if you tweak the environment, you can change what the dog does or doesn't do. Now, that's supposed to be brilliant psychology. Let me just say, that's just like common sense. I can train my dog to sit down and then feed him a doggy biscuit. But that doesn't help me understand the human heart. And in fact, what the whole point here behind what Skinner did and what Carl Rogers and Abraham Maslow and others who set up self-actualization is they're trying to teach that within you, uh, you're actually good. So since you're good, what you got to do is go through different layers of peeling the onion back to get down to the core of who you are to find out that, that, that there's a hero within you. It's within you. Don't look without. You just got to be true to yourself and have faith in faith and realize that you are special. And so inside of your own heart, you can have this incredible beauty that you just need to tap into. Well, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches in Psalm 51, 5. David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3, 10, there's none righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. My friends, if you start looking deeper within your own heart, you realize that you are a sinner. You're created in God's image, but you're a reprobate. And without the grace of God, you can never live this life in a way that would honor God and in a way that you would truly find satisfaction and contentment and true purpose. Well, let me give you a second a foundational belief which psychology teaches B man is not responsible for his actions and attitudes. Psychology teaches that people are victims, 
their problems are not their fault, but they are the result of what someone else has done or hasn't done to them. They have been abused or deprived and their needs have not been met. Now, let me just say that's true in a lot of situations. People are victims in the sense that somebody might have abused a child or something may have happened horrible. And in a sense, that child initially was innocent. But the difference is this. Over time, that child has to respond and deal with what happened to them. And if they try to respond and deal with what happened to them from a secular standpoint, it will never lead to saving grace and true freedom from that horrible circumstance. But if that child, by the grace of God, were to become born again, they could learn how to discipline their mind not to meditate on the past, but rather to meditate on Christ's goodness. Not only that, they could begin to look at the gospel of what happened to Jesus Christ and realize that an innocent man suffered, but while he was suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That you could teach that young child, now becoming a young adult, that they don't have to be scarred for the rest of their life to the point that they're not able to enter into a normal marriage covenant but rather you could teach that child that no matter what's happened to them they can continue to look to christ to find that they can find healing in jesus who binds up the hearts of the brokenhearted and they can receive it doesn't mean that all of a sudden their life is a piece of cake and it's not a challenge sure it could be a challenge but the problem is psychology would just keep feeding. Oh, you're a victim. You're a victim. Therefore, if you struggle with alcoholism or you get angry or you get mad or you become an addict, that's OK, because that's just kind of that happened to you. And now you do that. And it's understandable. Psychology also some forms of it will try to produce in you memories of the past that aren't even there. They try to dig back. If they can find something, then they'll hang that as a scapegoat. That's what happened to you. Your mother dropped you as a kid. That's why you've never bonded with your mother. No, you've never bonded with your mother because you were rebellious. You didn't want to follow what mom said. Well, my mom wasn't perfect. Well, neither was mine. No, but we still have a responsibility to act in a God-honoring way. And so the idea is some psychologists, if they can't find something to hang the scapegoat shingle on, they'll make up stuff. And they'll put it in your, quote, subconscious of stuff that happened, which is also a very dangerous uh, practice. So what, what, is, what does the Bible teach about all this? Why, why do we sin? Well, James 1, 14 and 15 says, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it's fully grown, brings death. I mean, the reason we sin and struggle isn't necessarily primarily based on the sin of others, but on our own sin. Well, let me move on. The third foundation to psychology would be this. The Bible, prayer, and the Holy Spirit are inadequate and too simplistic to solve deep emotional and spiritual problems. So there's your answer right there. Psychologists claim that to have, they, they claim to have actually a type of higher knowledge and greater insight than the Bible ever gives. So psychologists really know how to deal with your problem, not you. You're not really capable. You're thinking too simplistic about it. You've got to go through the deep recesses of psychology in order to understand what's really going on, which is why D, psychiatrists, think of themselves as experts in dealing with people's problems. 
So psychiatrists are the trained professionals. And they are convinced that pastors and lay people and Christians are completely unqualified and unskilled to deal with life's most complex problems. In their opinion, counseling is best left to the experts. And so the pastors should refer people to them as the specialist and submit to their expertise. In other words, pastors should stay on their turf. Let the psychologist deal with the soul. So they would say that if you're really sick, next part of your outline there, you should see a doctor. I agree with that. If you're sick, you should see a doctor. If you're confused about God, you should see a pastor. I also agree with that. What I don't agree with is number three, if you're depressed, see a psychologist. I believe that a psychologist would offer counsel that is contrary to the Bible. Now, let me just be clear. If you're in here and you've been to a psychologist, I'm not saying you're in sin. If you're in here and you've been to a Christian psychologist, I'm not saying you're in sin. I'm just trying to make the case that even Christian psychology can be built on a slippery slope if they give any credence at all to a secular ideology in the type of counsel that they give. And I'm also saying that any pastor or any Christian is able to offer better counsel In Christ, then the trained professional can offer without Christ. It's evident that psychology teaches unbiblical ideas and methods. And psychology at its core is truly diametrically opposed to what the Bible teaches. Psychology has been correctly summarized by one author as a war on the word of God. I mean, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1. In First Timothy 4, 1 through 7, we're warned again that we wouldn't devote ourselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. You say, well, Adam, are you saying that Christian psychologists are purporting the teaching of demons? If they offer secular psychology as a rationale behind what's happening and, and, and trying to help people by subscribing to the methods of Freud and Skinner, then yes. If they're just given the Bible and giving some common sense Uh, Ways to think about life might not be that harmful, but why not just come to the Bible alone to help you think through all of life's problems and how to respond to all of life's problems by growing in Christ likeness by realizing that, you know, I need to put off ungodly ways of thinking about things and I need to put on godly ways of thinking and acting. That's called Christian growth and sanctification, becoming more like Christ. That's the goal. The goal isn't like, oh, well, I, need to, I need to have some research from some study that says what most men struggle with in their marriages. I mean, that can be interesting, but is that really going to change you? First Thessalonians 5, 21, 22 says, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Well, again, we're talking about four reasons why psychology is wrong, right? The first one was because of who founded it. The second one was because of what it teaches. The third one is this. Psychology is wrong because of how it works. It's wrong because of how it works. Since its inception, psychology has been promoted and accepted as a full-fledged science. However, none of its theories or hypotheses can be tested and verified through traditional means of true science. And because they cannot be proved by measurable data or empirical evidence, I'm saying to you, psychology is not a true science. Psychology likes to think of themselves as being based on a medical model. 
In other words, psychology equates mental illnesses to physical illnesses. And when a person suffers from a physical illness, doctors diagnose that particular illness based on symptoms that can be verified through blood tests and x-rays, etc. Right? And, and, and based on their test, they can know for a fact that there's a problem. For example, if you have a flu or a flu virus, you can go to the doctor. They can swab out your nose. They can put that on, on, a, on a lab uh, microscope swab thing and take it to the lab, all right? And they can look at it and say, you know what? This guy's got, they've got the, the flu, okay? So they come back and say, you need to take this antiviral medication. We're going to put you on, you know, uh, this medication for a couple days, and you're going to be you're going to be a little bit better, right? It'll help you, help you fight the flu faster. If you have a bacterial infection, same thing. They can swipe your throat. Put it in the lab that grows it out. Oh, you've got bacteria. In fact, you've got streptococcus bacteria. So we're going to give you this antibiotic. And if you take this, you'll be better in a few days. That's how medicine works. We get that. So what psychologists try to do is they try to tap into that. And they say, well, people with psychological problems have a mental illness, right? And so they, 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 they diagnose these particular illnesses in the same way that a doctor would. First, by listening to the symptoms and the complaints of the patient. However, these symptoms cannot be verified through medical means. There are no x-rays, blood tests, MRIs that tell you that you have a chemical imbalance. And so the going trend of secular psychologists is that if you struggle with depression, for example, then you have a lack of the neurotransmitter serotonin in the synaptic cleft uh, gap between the, the, uh, the neurons in your brain. So what we need to do is give you some selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that if, if we give you these drugs, they'll increase the level of serotonin, which produces a euphoric feeling, and all of your problems will go away. Well, the problem with that is if you've been depressed or you've been diagnosed with clinical depression, it wasn't blood work that gave that information to your doctor. There is no blood work which gives a chemical uh, level of what the normal levels of serotonin are in the brain. So it's a hypothesis. You say, well, Adam, how come people who are on the medication get better? Well, studies show that a third get better, a third stay the same, and a third get worse. How's that working for you? How would that work in the field of diabetes, for example? What if you went in with a diabetic problem and they give you insulin and say, well, a third of them get better, a third stay the same, a third get worse? You'd be like, I need a new doctor. I'm looking for a little higher percentage than thirds, okay? And so the, the people who do do better oftentimes boast of doing much, much better. There are some chemical properties in the drugs. So I'm not saying that drugs don't have chemical properties. I'm just saying that we don't know scientifically what the normal level of the chemical should be and how this drug truly affects it. So you say, how come some get better? Well, there's this thing called the placebo effect, right? The idea that I'm going to the doctor, I'm receiving medication, I'm feeling better, therefore I must be getting better. Now, hear me well. I used to be a physician's assistant, and I have uh, seen depressed patients. I have also prescribed, as a provider, medications for people who have asked for specific medications to help them with their struggle of depression. So I'm not saying that it's a sin to think of yourself as having a challenge or to take a medication. If you're here today and you're struggling with depression and you take a pill for it, I don't believe that's a sin. I do, however, believe it's a conscience issue. If you're looking to that pill as the end all salvation of your struggle, then you're an idolater. If 
though you're looking to Christ and you're constantly in the word and in prayer and receiving good biblical counsel and you personally on your own decide, but I'm going to also take the pill. I say that's between you and the Lord. Okay. There's a lot of Christian or uh, biblical counselors who initially said, oh, you can't take the, these medications. Just hear well from your pastor. I'm saying, hey, you can do whatever you want unto the glory of God. Right. And the idea is if you're thinking of it as an as a as a, I have to or I need in order to be happy, then that's idolatry. If you're thinking of it as a, you know, what, I don't know what else to do. So I'm just going to continue to pray and just take this medication for a while to help me through a difficult point. Again, that's between you and the Lord. All right. So I just want to be clear now. I'm not, I'm not coming down hard here saying anybody who's ever taken any medication is a complete sinner enslaved to, to the medication. All right. But I am saying this. We need to understand that there's still la- a lack of true evidence that that stuff works. And so I'm saying what we know works is biblical truth. Christ works. God's word discipleship can help grow you into a place of where you can handle the issue with a little bit more biblical fortitude. Let me move on. Number four, you can ask questions to me later if you want to talk more about that. But the fourth reason psychology is wrong is this. Psychology is wrong because it has not worked. Again, that's just the idea of it's not like people go to psychologists and all of a sudden they're all better and have no more problems. And so I'm saying that at the end of the day, psychology doesn't, uh, can't truly claim that it cures all of the issues of depression or psychological problems. Now, let me just end real quick here by just pointing you here, and you can study on your own. But let me give you the second thing about psychology. Uh, psychology cannot be integrated with Christianity. It just can't. You can't really integrate the two. Let me give you four reasons just quickly why you can't do that. Number one, integration attempts to mix Christ with Belial. So Belial is another word for Satan. And in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, it says, What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? In other words, you can't mix oil and water. You can't mix light and darkness. They don't mix. That's like theistic evolution. That's like saying, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe in creation, but I also believe in evolution. So somehow they work together. It doesn't work. Get off the fence. All right. Number two, integration denies the Bible's claim of sufficiency. Certainly, psychology is not developed to be a help to Christianity, but rather in opposition to it. So basically, integrationism is the idea that we need the Bible plus other research from man. Number three, integration denies Christ's adequacy as the wonderful counselor. Well, that's great that you're a Christian and you go talk to your pastor about your problems. But if you really want help, why don't you come to my office and I'll give you some professional help? Well, that is sounds so um, acceptable, right, in our culture. But if it denies the adequacy of Christ, then it is a false teaching. How about this one? Number four, integration assumes that for 2,000 years, God left the people of his church without the necessary resources to solve people's problems and to live godly lives. So what did we do before Sigmund Freud? He's the father of modern psychology. How in the world did the church in the 1700s and 1800s deal with problems with depression? You got to go to Christ. I mean, the bottom line is we need Christ. 
We need to be balanced. We need to be biblical. We need to be understanding. But maybe you could just take home these principles. You've got to be able to build your foundation on the rock who is Christ and not the sand of this world. I don't care how much research you look at. I don't care how many studies. Well, studies show. So what? The Bible says the problem is your heart. Number two, don't be intimidated by the world's system, but rather put your confidence in God's word. How many of you guys have been intimidated before when somebody says, well, I got bipolar. You're like, oh, I guess I can't talk to you. Oh, you've been diagnosed with depression. Go see your psychologist. No, I, I think our response should be like, hey, I'm so sorry about your struggle. I'd love to talk to you about what God's word says. I'm not saying you start to tinker with their medication. I'm not saying you tell them, hey, you got to quit taking your meds. In fact, I tell them, don't say that. What what they do between them and their psychologist or them and their doctor, that's up to them. But you can still offer to them hope in Christ. You can lead them to Christ. Don't be so intimidated by, quote, educated people who think they understand it all when the Bible says that the wisdom of this world is fleeting. Lastly, ask God to help you be a better counselor who seeks to point others to Jesus. At the end of the day, remember we're all people in need of change, helping people in need of change, and the person who produces change is Jesus Christ. Now look, I started off telling you about Candace, who physically died. While that's extremely rare in the world of psychotherapy, people are dying spiritually every day by believing what psycho therapy and secular psychology teaches instead of the bible we want to be a church that offers real answers to real problems in jesus let's pray together father thank you for this morning thank you for a church that is earnest to learn your word and apply your word and to take great pride in our savior jesus christ who is the only life-changing agent who has ever lived forgive us god for being enamored impressed overly interested in what the world has to say on the behavior of the heart. Help us to be truthful, to be honest, to be open, to consider anything, all with the grain of salt as we compare what the world offers to what you have already offered us in your all-sufficient, inspired, infallible word. Help us be a church that stands on the rock of Jesus Christ, who offers counsel from the life of Christ, who sees change coming from Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.